Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to Him, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to Him, Yes, Lord, I believe that You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this time together. May Your Word open up to us inroads and healing and restoration. I pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. If you don't know where that is from, that's from the story of Lazarus who had died and was resurrected by Jesus from the grave. That story has a lot of parallels with the death and resurrection of Jesus. A few things different, but I want to uh, share some things that are similar. And one of the things that is quite similar is that the situation was hopeless. In our sunrise service, we looked at the hopelessness of the situation when Jesus was laid in the tomb. Seems like an end of a story. Lazarus also was wrapped in grave clothes, grave clothes, if you will. They wrapped them in cloths and put him in a tomb, dead. No question about it. For four days, he lay dead. For Jesus, it was three. But at that point, as soon as they laid their brother in the tomb, it's the end of Lazarus' story. There is no hope unless Jesus comes and raises him back up. But Jesus isn't there. At the end of three days, Jesus is still not there. And on the fourth day, according to their custom, they believe that the spirit of the dead departed and was gone. No hope for resurrection in this life. They believed within three days it was possible, but not four. And so, the fourth day came, and Jesus still hadn't shown up. That's it. Hope is gone. Yet, both stories end with the dead walking out of the grave. That's the stories we know. But the similarities there with the hopelessness and the ensuing grief are parallel for both of them. As a matter of fact, what Martha says to Jesus is also what Mary says to Jesus in the first sentence of her speech when Jesus is yet a distance away and Martha hears that He's coming. She leaves the house where the mourners are, leaves out of Bethany and knows Jesus is coming. That's how word worked back then. It wasn't, hey, see you in a few. <laughs> Be there in ten. <laughs> it wasn't like that back then. They had messengers. And people would travel on horseback back and forth to send messages from town to town. And Martha knew Jesus was coming and she left the house and went 
to where Jesus was. And she said, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. A little later, Mary's still in the house. Martha, I don't know where she gets this from. She says, Jesus is calling you. Come on out. I don't see it anywhere recorded in the Scripture that He says, tell Mary to get out here. It never happens in the Scripture, but I share this with you because as soon as uh, she heard that He was coming, she came to Him. And this is what Mary said in verse 32. Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. They've seen healings. Miracles of deaf, hearing, blind, seeing, sick, well, lame, jumping for joy. All these things they've seen and they knew if Jesus had been there, whatever was ailing Lazarus would not have taken his life. Jesus would have healed him because he loved him. So you can look at that statement two different ways. Depends on how you think about it. Jesus, you know, there's something wrong with you. You knew you knew he was sick. Why weren't you here? Could have been a game or a blame game that she was doing, throwing her sadness to saying, you know, if you had been here, but you weren't, type thing. Or it could have been, you were our only hope. You are our only hope. And that's what we recognize you as. You are the only hope. I don't know exactly how she said it. We don't know the tone. Don't know if she's implying shame onto Jesus or not. But she is saying, you could have done something. You could have, and I know this. But we'll get to the power of that in just a moment. At this point in time, they are in Bethany, which is, as the Scripture tells us, a couple miles from Jerusalem where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. Jesus was a distance away when He heard the news, stayed, waited until Lazarus was dead before He made the journey to where He was. And He told the disciples this is for God's glory. Jesus knew in verse 14 that Lazarus was dead. He knew it. Now, no messenger came at that time to tell them that. Jesus knew this. The messengers came and said, He's sick, please come. But He waited, it says. And then He said, let us go. Lazarus is dead. Let's go see him. And they, you know, when you say, here's a dead guy, let's go see him, the disciples are going... Uh, he's dead, we're going to go see him. The only way we're going to go see a dead guy is if we're dead too. And that's what one of them said. Well, let's go die with him. Weird statement. I think they could have said, yes, let's go to the grave <laughs> and go and see his grave. Not go see him and die as well. But that's what they said. And this whole picture is what happens as soon as you have tragedy. Your mind doesn't go right directions. You start hurting and grieving and thinking things that aren't quite rational when you're not grieving. You start going through denial and anger and bargaining, all the stages of grief. And this is what was happening with them. As soon as they heard Lazarus is dead, well, he's dead, and they start thinking silly. Or, 
shall we say, grief-stricken. Because we don't know how to process it because we're in shock. It's true. And when Jesus died and they said He was alive, they were still in shock. They didn't believe He was alive because they're still in the process of grieving. Grieving says, it's the end of the story. I have new information that this is the end. New information does not compute. Especially if you say, well, they're alive again. No, it's not. No, no, they're dead. And your brain doesn't know how to take that in when you're grieving. Instead, for example, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, the people didn't know how to stop grieving. The mourners were still there. They had professional mourners and friends who had come from Jerusalem to mourn. He raised them from the dead, and the mourners go, uh, We're out of a job. What do we do? Congratulations, see you later. I don't know. But the thing is that in our grief, we express it different ways and for different lengths of time. And however that happens for us, it's perfectly okay. Yours doesn't have to look like somebody else's. And definitely shouldn't. But sooner or later, as you move through the process... The last thing that happens is an acceptance of the loss. Think about it. On the night Jesus was betrayed, He took the unleavened bread. We had the Seder last week with the bread. And the bread is the last element on the plate that we haven't talked about. But the bread is like a cracker, but it has little holes in it. And it looks like the way it's cooked, like it has stripes on it, almost like it was grilled. And so it looks like the pierced and whipped body of Jesus Christ. Pierced and striped is what they say the proper unleavened bread must look like. Now, Jesus died right at the beginning of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It means they have six more days to eat this And remember, Jesus is dead. And while Jesus is still dead, that painful reminder of take and eat, this is my body, is a very uncomfortable sensation for the disciples. Very uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, they thought, well, He said He's going to come back to life again, but we saw what He looked like on the cross. If He came back to life after the scourging, the spear thrust in His side, the scars in His hands, uh, the, where the spikes went through, and the whips, and all those things, the scars and stripes would be noticeable and disfiguring. He would not, if He came out of the grave, look like a human being even yet. Imagine someone who is beaten half to death and looks like nothing human comes back to life, they're not going to look like a human. They're just going to be alive. And so, they're thinking about this process and this is what grief does. Well, if God did save their life, what kind of life are they going to have? That's what we think about when our loved ones get sick and they're close to death. We go, God, you know, if they do survive this, what kind of life will they have? We don't want that for them. We want them here, but we don't want them like that. And and it hurts to see both sides of that story. Inside, you start fighting that pre-grief process. And the disciples 
It says in Scripture, on the night He was to be betrayed, that the disciples became grieving because Jesus said He's leaving. That they're grieving in the Garden of Gethsemane. They are trying to stay awake, but they're exhausted from what Jesus has told them about His departure, and they're exhausted from grief. And they don't understand what is happening yet. Can you understand how Mary and Martha, when their brother is dead, that there is no hope more for their brother to come back? It's not hard to figure. There is no way we can think about when we lay our loved ones in the grave, hey, you know, in a few days they might come back. No, we don't think like that. We think one glad day there will be a reunion and we'll be face to face and we'll see them with Jesus one day. This is exactly how they thought about Lazarus when he died. And when Jesus says to Martha, your brother will live again. And she says, well, I know he will in the resurrection of the last days. And Jesus looks at her and says, what? I am! the resurrection of the last day. Do you not know who I am? And she says, you are the Christ. You are the one. You are the Son of God who is to come into the world. Do you hear this? She says, I know He's going to rise again and you're the Christ, but He's dead. (laughs) You're the resurrection, but He's dead four days. So, In the midst of her grief, there is no hope. It's too late for her, for Lazarus. But Martha says something. And I want you to hear this. She says, I know, even now, that whatever you ask God, He's going to do for you. Even now, in the midst of this hurt and pain, even now I know, God, you can still do something. There's a difference, would you not agree with me, between the two statements of if you had been here and even now you can still. There's one kind of faith that says that there's possibilities, preventative if you will. First degree faith, uh, Mark Batterson calls it, is the kind of faith like that prayer who said, if you'd been here, you could have kept him from dying. So we pray, God, help me through this situation. Help me get through this. Help me survive this. Bless this. Help this. This is preventative prayers. God, don't let this be a sickness that ends in death. God, take this burden from me. Those are the first degree prayers and most of them are asking God to stop something or to change something that has not fully happened yet. Kind of like asking God, don't let bad things happen to keep them from it. Like safety when we travel. That's a preventative prayer. Or we pray a hedge of protection around our children or as we did for Diane for her upcoming surgery. That hedge is preventative prayer. It's not an after-the-fact prayer. Nothing wrong with these kind of prayers. God delights in knowing that we know He can do those things. 
Yet there's that other dimension of faith that believes that God can undo what's already been done. That kind of prayer is second degree faith in its resurrection type faith. It's a faith that refuses to put periods at the end of a disappointment, but rather a comma. You see, for us, a lot of times we put a period where God intended for us to put a comma. Maybe you didn't see when I read this with the conversation that Martha's having with him. But there's a word there. It's the biggest three-letter word in all of Scripture. It says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But! It's a conjunction. It means there is a hope still. That but God, but Jesus can. This transformation in that moment is what puts the comma where others, including our situations, look like there's a period and an exclamation point. This is a faith, this resurrection faith that believes God can reverse what is irreversible. It's a faith that believes it's not over until God says it's over. This faith is in Martha's even now profession of faith. But I know. But I know. Now, this word know isn't like, I kind of get it. The word I know is because she's seen Him raise the dead. And all the miracles of feeding and all the hundreds of miracles we don't even know about. She said, but I know. I know God listens to you. And He'll do whatever you ask. I know this. Even now, when it's too late, God can still show up. I know this. Maybe you felt one day like God was a day later, a dollar short. God is a little bit too late. Then you know how hopeless it can feel in situations. Of course it can. But I want to tell you something. Just like Lazarus raising from the grave and Jesus rising from His, Easter changes everything or it changes nothing for you. If you don't believe, you're not going to have resurrection faith. You're just going to see things as a period and a story. History is over. It's done. You can't repeat it. can't redo it. You see, resurrection faith does what only God can do. There's a time in our life when we realize it's beyond the scope of my thinking that God can do this. I don't even see a part how God can or why He would. So therefore, if it's going to happen, it's only going to get done if God does it. There's points in our life where that happens. Those are the points where nothing we can think of or see in our life or even imagine that would make the situation work out. That is the point where we say, but even now, when there's 
nothing I can think of, God, that you can do. Nothing that can change this. Even now, I know you still can. So I still have hope that there's a resurrection somewhere in this. Somewhere, somehow. One of my favorite verses out of Isaiah is God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not our thoughts. As a matter of fact, it says it like this, and this is the part we always say God's ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, but we don't quote the first part of the verse. I want you to hear the first part of the verse because this is the one that shows you the category of distinction between God's ways and thoughts and ours. He says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so in as much as the greatest height of heaven, the furthest reaches of the universe, down to earth is the distinction between our thought level and His. Well, I didn't do the math, but I had someone else who did, and I want to share with you the math on his thoughts compared to ours. This is some statistics, so if you're, um, what do you call it, you like those things, uh, facts and figures and awesomeness and amazing, this is for you. You see, the universe is so large, it requires an awfully long tape measure to measure it. The basic unit of measurement in the universe is a light year. A light year. It's a basic unit of measurement, like an inch, a light year. It travels, light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Most of us remember that. It's so fast that in the time it takes to snap your fingers, light has circled the globe six times. That's fast. We can't think like that. To put the speed of light and the size of our universe into the proper perspective, the sun is 94.4 million miles away from here at its furthest distance from us. If you could drive to the sun and you were traveling 65 miles per hour, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would take you more than 163 years to get there. That's a long time. The light that warms our face on this sunny day, on the other hand, left the sun eight minutes ago. (laughs) So while 94.4 million miles might seem like a lot to us, by earthly standards, it's our next door neighbor by heavenly ones. The sun is the nearest star in our little galaxy known as the Milky Way. There are more than 80 billion galaxies in the universe. Um, By the way, that means everybody on earth gets 10 galaxies. If you haven't done the math, I can't even fathom. So you won't have to worry about running out of things to do in eternity. (laughs) It's a big sandbox. In one minute, light travels 11 million miles. In one day... Light travels 160 billion miles. In one year, light travels an unfathomable 
5,865,696,000,000 miles. Believe me, I'm getting somewhere with all these figures. Trust me. That's just one light year. The outer edge of the universe, according to the most recent survey of astrophysicists, is 15.5 billion light years away. Multiply that times 5,865,696,000,000 miles, you will know how far that is. If that seems incomprehensible, it's because it's virtually unimaginable. We can't think like that. Yet God said that's the distance between His thoughts and ours. As high as the highest heaven to the earth is how much bigger His thoughts are than yours and mine. Your best thought on your best day falls 15.5 billion light years below God's. It shows how God and how good He really is. That good. Even the most brilliant among us underestimate God by that much. 15.5 billion light years. But God, hear this, is able to do 15.5 billion light years beyond what you ever ask or imagine as possible. God has no problem doing what we can't expect or understand. We can't fathom it, but God already knows it. He's already planned for it. He already understands. And I'm so thankful. Most people don't understand that God's thoughts are higher than ours and His ways are higher than ours. And some try to understand and can't fathom it. So it doesn't matter anyway. But again, if you don't know about the truth of God and don't believe, you will not have resurrection faith. Martha knew Lazarus was dead. It took resurrection faith. Wait a minute, you say, but um, what does resurrection faith look like for the disciples? (laughs) Let me share this with you. I think you'll appreciate this out of Luke chapter 24. This is when the disciples have already heard a few things. They had a few guys walking on the road to Emmaus. Jesus came with them and opened up the Scriptures. Then those guys went back and told the disciples that Jesus was alive. In Mark it says that they did not believe them. Think about that. They did not believe that Jesus was alive even after they told Him. Now I want to share with you that when He said it, in Mark chapter 16 it says, He appeared to two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's the two. And they went and told it to the rest. And they didn't believe them either. They didn't believe the women. They didn't believe them. And now, in Luke chapter 24, here comes Jesus. (laughs) Ooh, maybe they'll believe Him. Maybe. Let's see. Beginning in verse 36, we find out their story. Now, as they said these things, this is the two disciples that come back, they didn't believe. Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. 
Now this is get this picture. Two guys from Emmaus sat with Jesus, had bread. They came back and said, He's alive. We don't believe you. Jesus stands right there immediately after saying, We don't believe you. There's Jesus pops right in the room. Do you get this? We don't believe you. We don't believe he's alive. We don't understand. We saw him die. We saw him in the tomb. We won't we don't believe. We can't believe. The women told us we don't believe them. It's not possible. Grief says it's over. God says it's not. Even now, God can do something when it's over. And Jesus says, peace you, and they're terrified and frightened. It's a spirit. He's not alive, it's his ghost. Like it was on the water, I guess. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why? Why are you having doubts in your heart? About me. Why do you still doubt? Here I am and you still don't believe. Behold, look at my hands and my feet. Look! It is me. It's I myself. Who else is it? Handle me. Touch me. And see that a spirit does not have flesh and bone. And I do. Why are you doubting? Same thing he's asking us. It's because we're stuck in the grief and the even nows. It's possible, God, and you're not doing anything. So I don't know. Until you do something, I just don't know. And Jesus keeps rebuking us, saying, Why do you doubt? Oh, ye of little faith. You have a faith that preventative but not resurrection. Why don't you go all the way? When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, but while they still did not believe. I don't know what more you can show them. He's standing there with the scars and the wounds and saying, Touch me, feel me, it's me. Oh, no, it's not Jesus. Well, who is it then? Who resurrected from the dead and popped into the room with door shut but Jesus? Who else can do that? It's a ghost. No, I'm flesh and blood. Feel me. Touch me. Handle me. Some of us are afraid to approach Jesus find out He's real. They still didn't get that? Here He is right there. I don't believe it's you. I can't just... Just that blows me away in verse 41. While they still did not believe, it says for joy, because they're still in grief. And they're marveling. And then he says, You got any something to eat? I'm hungry. Let's get back to eating. Let's go back to our life of togetherness. Let's eat. And they're going, um, Well, we got some fish and some honeycomb. Maybe some unleavened bread. But the lamb's gone. We ate that. Oh yeah, with you. Forgot. And he took it and he ate it in their presence. And they don't believe. I want to know something. If Jesus popped in right in this room and said, here I am, would you believe? They didn't. And why do we need that? 
Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and his prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding hmm, that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Our understanding needs opened. We are hard, hearted, hard headed. At least I know I am. It's hard to move, isn't it, from this can't be any better to God can do anything in this moment. It's really hard to do that because we're stuck in the emotional and psychological and physical connection to the reality of what we see as our life. But God is way up there going, uh, you haven't seen the rest of this thing yet. Most of us can see God doing what is impossible for us. God, you can heal this or heal that. But how many of us think that God can do what seems impossible for Him to do? God, this is, you can't even do this one. You know what God's doing? He's looking going, watch me. Watch me. No, God, even now, you don't understand. It's too late. You can't do anything. And God's going, watch me. Turn your even now you can't to even now you can. Even now, after all this, God still can. Have the faith of Martha that even now, whatever He asks, God will do. Now I want you to do something with me. This is really how this message came together for me. A few days before this, he's gathered in the upper room and he's broke the unleavened bread and given it to them saying, what's he say? Take and eat. Do this. And remember what I've done for you. Right? When they're eating that unleavened bread for the days that he's in the grave, it reminds them of his death. But what about the Passover following that? Can you imagine the conversation when the disciples gather together to have that Passover feast one year later? And they're going, do you remember how Jesus took that bread and broke it and, and we were grieving and how miserable we were and how we left Him and... And this unleavened bread reminded us how much of a failure we were and how much He gave for us and, and, and we didn't believe. And, and how sad and broken we were. And how hopeless things seemed. Even up when we saw Him face to face, we still didn't believe in Him. And they're talking about this and they're going, wow, wow, can you believe that what He did, He knew we would remember a year later as we broke this bread that He had done something that night that we wouldn't understand until the resurrection. Jesus may be doing something in your life right now that you don't understand right now. You may be in a situation, a struggle, a tough period. And you may not understand it. 
But Jesus got a resurrection for you. And you can say, even now I know God can do something. I know this. He's done it before. The one year anniversary of Jesus' death should have brought back grief. Oh, He died this day. They didn't do that. They go, this is the day He died. <laughs> and this, this is the day we thought everything was over. But it was just beginning. Mm-hmm. Do you see how God's resurrection faith changes things? Mm-hmm. That what seems over is a beginning, not an end. God does not put a period. He puts a comma. And then He does the rest of the story. Even now, even now, God is saying, I can in the midst of whatever it is. And in this second, even now, God can do whatever we ask. Do you believe? Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, some of us today need a touch a healing, a restoration, an encouragement, a resurrection of some things that are broken, uh, things that just don't seem to be in place in our faith walk, uh, a, a new touch, a new birth, a new life. Heavenly Father, that unleavened bread needs to be broken yet again for us so we remember that it's not over, the story's not over, the bread broken is life given, not life ending. And so, Heavenly Father, whatever is broken in us, we ask that You would make a resurrection into Your holiness and healing and restoration. God, there's so many things that we deal with on a regular basis. And on top of that, we deal with the stresses of life, whether they be emotional, loss, grief, a job, and relationships, all these things, Heavenly Father. And in the midst of that, we wonder, God, where are You? What are you doing? Where, where am I in, in relation? Do you care? And all we can come to know and all we can ever seem to understand is that we have no answers. And it seems impossible. And Heavenly Father, that seems to be the place where you want us to get to, so we'll call on you who delights in doing the impossible. And even now in the midst of whatever it is, even now, and I would say especially right now, you are able to show up and put that conjunction, but you, God, did this. I felt this way, but you did this. This was breaking, but you did this. Heavenly Father, that's what we need today, and I believe you can do it. And so I'm asking you for your work to be manifest in this place right now. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.